you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Lord, the preciousness of this passage is beyond words. It's also a very familiar passage for a lot of us. A lot of us have even seen this in a bookstore, on a, on a little calendar, an inspirational plaque or something. So give us fresh ears to hear this text, that we might soak in every ounce of the beauty and the refreshment contained therein. Holy Spirit, might you work and power accordingly this morning. We plead with you for transformation, for renewal. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, growing up in Southern California, I'm not sure if this was age appropriate, probably not, but my third grade teacher established a reward system in which if we behaved well during the week, our class would get to watch the show Are You Afraid of the Dark on Friday afternoons. And I say get to in air quotes because I was, in fact, very afraid of this show. This was not rewarding for me at all. I was one of those sensitive souls taking the episodes far too seriously, falling very hard for the CGI, which, by the way, uh, was impressive considering the nature of CGI in the early 90s. But alas, Friday afternoon screenings were inevitable, so I tried to mitigate my experiences of fear by telling myself and my peers that the episodes really didn't bother me at all because they were ridiculous and absurd and amusing and even humorous, you know, ha, 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 bring on Friday afternoon. Now, I wasn't wrong. I looked this up to confirm. The show is absolutely absurd. Episode 10 of season 3 was called The Tale of the Dream Girl, and the official description reads, Johnny is haunted by a dream girl who is really a ghost looking for a boyfriend. And then there was the season finale of season three, the tale of the dangerous soup, in which Dr. Vink offers a soup made from fear in his strange restaurant. Neither of those things even makes sense. The problem is that my mitigation measures didn't work at all. The show continued to scare me, and I dreaded Friday afternoons. More seriously, many of us have experienced quite a lot of fear the past couple of years. Maybe more fear than ever. Some of us are dealing with fear right now, 
as you're seated here in the sanctuary, dreading any of a laundry list of things there are to dread these days that are very real and have nothing to do with an ill-conceived show from the early 90s. And we try various kinds of mitigation, don't we? We try to convince ourselves that our fear is unfounded and we're, we're overreacting and these things are trivial and amusing and so forth, or we try to convince ourselves that the reasons for our fear will pass away soon, and then we'll have peace. You know, the virus will end, the war will end, our candidate will get elected, and then we'll have peace. Or perhaps we try to put our fear into action, we treat it as healthy concern, and we employ it as fuel for our activism and our policy making and so forth. The problem is that all of these mitigation strategies have this really annoying tendency to completely fail. We mitigate and we mitigate and we mitigate some more, but so often our fear persists and it even grows. Why do these strategies fail? Because it turns out that the only meaningful and powerful way to deal with fear lies outside of ourselves and our earthly means. Or to put this more concisely, it turns out that the fix for fear is transcendent. And what is that way? What is this transcendent way, this fix? It's walking with God. And this morning we're going to see that in the context of fear, such walking has a lot more to do with redirection and replacement than elimination. Fearful conditions will endure on this earth, but God is so magnificent that he exceeds the conditions of the fear and gives us what we need to persevere with joy and contentment. Two reminders this morning as we make our way through Psalm 23. In seasons of fear, remember that number one, the Lord is our shepherd. And then number two, the Lord is our host. The Lord is our shepherd and the Lord is our host. And I got to tell you, I got going on this, especially this first one. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on the shepherding and a little bit of time on the hosting part. Um, but I think the Lord will use it. And may it be so. So let's start with that first reminder. In seasons of fear, let's remember that the Lord is our shepherd. Take a look at verses 1 through 3, which are some of the most comforting and refreshing verses in the entire Bible. If you are not in the mood for some encouragement in the Lord, you are in for a really long morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. On one hand, the language in verse 1 isn't surprising. The title tells us that King David composed this psalm, and David was famously a shepherd before he took the throne. Quite a lot of other people in Israel were shepherds too, or at least knew a whole lot about shepherding and saw it happening all the time, so it makes sense that David used shepherding language in his poetry. He knew the field. It's actually a nice little pun right there. 
And the imagery resonated with his audience. He knew his audience. This was very intentional. These days, we don't hear much about sheep and shepherding outside of political arguments on Twitter. So here's what you need to know about shepherding. In David's day, a shepherd's main job, and you can probably glean this from this text, was to provide food and water for the sheep and sometimes other animals like goats. In order to provide this food and water, shepherds had to guide the sheep to the areas containing said food and water, which meant shepherds had to be very knowledgeable concerning rain and vegetation patterns so they could guide the sheep to the right places during the right seasons. And of course, shepherds protected the sheep, which meant keeping the sheep from putting themselves in danger, protecting the sheep from themselves, and also watching out for predatory threats like wolves. Basic shepherding equipment included a rod, a staff, a bag, and a sling. You know, hello, David and Goliath, you know about this. And then in a few moments, you will hear more about shepherding equipment than ever before in your lifetime. So the shepherds provided, and they guided, and they protected. Provided, guided, and protected, and the sheep depended on the shepherds entirely to survive and thrive. Sometimes sheep get a bad rap now, okay? They aren't as intelligent, uh, unintelligent as they're, they're made out to be. I do not want sheep listening back to this on Spotify and, and feeling marginalized or whatever, but at least in David's day, they were some very needy animals. Sometimes sheep would struggle to find their way back to the sheepfold after feeding, even if they could see the sheepfold. Now you know everything there is to know about shepherding. And again, this language is not all that surprising given David's context. It makes sense. On the other hand, this language is not only surprising, it's absolutely it's stunning. David is telling us that the Almighty Creator, God of the universe, is his shepherd. Not just a shepherd, his shepherd, my shepherd. He's David's king and his rock and his deliverer and his shield. This is language we find elsewhere in the Psalms, but also, and far more intimately, his shepherd. 50% of this metaphor makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we can buy into this business about people being sheep because we're a very needy group of folks. Last week, in my, back there in my office, I warmed up a meal that some very thoughtful people from Healthy Choice pre-made and froze for me and put in a little box. The only thing that I had to do was take it out of the box and vent the film with the fork. And five minutes later, there were pieces of turkey just exploding in the microwave. We're a very needy group of folks. Or more seriously, we're just, we're just kind of a mess, all of us. How often do you think the American public has used the word struggling in the past few years? I would love to scan the New York Times archives and see what the word counts are. We're frustrated, we're worn out, 
We don't know what to do next. We don't know where to go. We feel threatened, and we sense that we're defenseless, and we're so afraid, all of which is very sheep-esque. But the other 50% of this metaphor, it catches us off guard in the sweetest possible way. Yahweh shepherds his sheep, and his sheep can claim him as their shepherd. The one who created us and knows our sheepness better than we ever will, he shepherds us anyway on account of his own steadfast love and goodness. And according to David's testimonial here, here's what this means. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to want for anything. I will never have lack. Indeed, the Lord, this is verse 2, makes me lie down in green pastures. There's the, the provision part. And the Lord leads me beside still waters. There's the, the guidance part. And the Lord, verse 3, restores my soul. There's the provision part again. And the Lord leads me in paths of righteousness. There's the guidance part again. I have a huge objection to this, though. And you might have the same. The setting of Psalm 3, which we preached through just two Sundays ago, involved David hightailing it out of Jerusalem because his own son, Absalom, had successfully conspired to usurp David's throne. And oh, by the way, in case you were hoping for a happy ending, that story ends in Absalom's death. That sounds like a whole lot of wants to me. And not a lot of green pastures and still waters. David is running out of town, weeping his way up the Mount of Olives to the east of the city, deceived by a son who had killed one of his other sons because that son had raped David's daughter and eventually the conspiratorial son dies and we find David weeping yet again and saying, this is 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. How in the world do we square Psalm 23 with that? Let's keep going, and let's see if it helps. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So whatever verses 1 through 3 mean, now we know that David did not expect to avoid the valleys darkened by the shadows of death. He knew they were coming, and he was writing from experience both with literal desert valleys, which would cast these, these ominous shadows and conceal threats as he made his way around Judah. And certainly he had experience with metaphorical valleys along the lines of what we just discussed. But church, if you are suffering greatly and life feels more like death, 
And you, if you're being honest, want to take these, these cutesy Psalm 23 posters and picture frames you find in Christian bookstores and kindle a bonfire, David gets where you're coming from. He understands you. He knows that kind of difficulty and uncertainty and pain. And in fact, he expected his path to take him through these kinds of valleys on the regular. And yet, David confidently says that in those valleys he will fear no evil because the Lord is with him. And the Lord's rod and staff give him comfort. A shepherd uses his rod to defend sheep from predators and uses staff to kind of organize his sheep, another form of protection lest the sheep scatter and expose themselves to danger. And now the heart of Psalm 23 comes into view and we're, we're given a means of dealing with fear that is effectively the opposite of what we're given in the world. Especially in the West, contemporary exhortations about fear and anxiety tend to be grounded in reframing our circumstances or in circumstantial change. Hang in there. It's not as bad as you think. It's all a matter of perspective. Or hang in there. Your breakthrough is coming. This valley season won't last forever. Or perhaps vaguely stated optimism along the lines of don't worry, things are going to be okay. Or even, well, here are some things you might try to change your circumstances. And you can do it because you have powerful inner resources that you just need to tap, and then we cheerlead. These are the ways we're supposed to find peace in fearful and anxious seasons. This is what we're being told. But then Psalm 23 tells us, expect some terribly dark valleys. Probably worse than you can imagine, but know that the Lord, your shepherd, will be with you, and he will protect you. Or to put this another way, valleys... This is really important. Valleys can and will take you in, but with the Lord by your side, they can never take you out. Can I do a little bit of preaching about Jesus? Don't answer that question because I'm going to do it anyway. I need to confess that earlier I was actually being a little easy on us sheep. I don't know if you caught this. We're not just absent-minded and confused and tired. We are sinful sheep with a knack for doing things our own way instead of doing things God's way because we think that our way will bring us more happiness and joy and so forth. That's sin. So we don't just deal with threats out there, out there in the world, we end up putting ourselves in such grave danger because the thing about leaving the sheepfold, because we know better and, and our way will, will bring us more joy and, and contentment and happiness, the thing about leaving the sheepfold for, for, for greener pastures is that we can't actually get back to the sheepfold on our own. We laughed about the sheep earlier. I can't believe it. They go out to feed and they, they can't even get back to their sheepfold. That is, that is us. 
because of our sin. Aside from miraculous intervention from a shepherd, which is foreshadowing, by the way, we're as good as dead. Now here's a part where I preach about Jesus, and to do that I decide to simply quote Jesus when he was preaching, work smarter, not harder. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 7 through 11, somewhere around a thousand years after the composition of Psalm 23. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, that is, the door to the sheepfold, God's sheepfold. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Don't you love it when something just kind of works? You know, when everything just, just starts coming together like this? Jesus, the Son of God, became human and came to this earth that we might have abundant life, the ultimate provision. And he did so by taking on death itself, the ultimate predator. Death had us in its fangs, but Jesus spread out his arms and he took the blows instead, blows we deserved, that we might be saved and safely make our way back into the sheepfold. Jesus pulled us from death's teeth by taking our sin upon himself, and then he opened the door to the sheepfold of God by conquering that sin and the great enemy death through his victorious resurrection. The good shepherd opened the door by becoming the door back to God. At this point, I'm, kinda, I'm like legally obligated to quote Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, looks like that's pointing to Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So David didn't have to fear evil because his hope was in the Lord who was present with him then and would remain with him forever on account of what Jesus was going to do a thousand years later. And when the Lord is present with us, we know that our shepherd is guiding us. None of our circumstances are an accident, not even the valleys. And when the Lord is present with us, we know that he'll protect us. Which gives us such peace, even in the face of death. I have an important question. Did David have peace because a marauding army couldn't possibly come down the valley and kill his body? No. That's not why he had peace. David had peace because he knew the Lord would be with him. And that army could never kill his soul. You see the difference? And the same is true for us today, church. If we're in Christ, we have peace. 
not because we won't encounter difficulties. We have peace because we know the good shepherd Jesus is with us. Peace is not the absence of suffering and difficulties. It is the presence of Jesus. Peace is not the absence of suffering and difficulties. It is the presence of Jesus Christ. And he is guiding us and he is protecting us and he will lead us home. A home that, by the way, will entail greener pastures and stiller waters than anything we can possibly imagine. And there we won't want for anything. And this is why Psalm 23, you know, you would think, oh, I bet Psalm 23 is really popular in churches. It's such a famous text. You want to know where it's really popular in Gainesville? It's popular at Shands. It's popular at the VA. It's popular at North Florida. It's like the chaplain's very best friend. And you know what's interesting? It's popular, especially with people who are dying. A chaplain can confidently read this to a dying person whose hope is in the Lord because a flat line on a machine is a joke. In God's eyes. It has zero power over his people. It's more absurd than an episode of, of Are You Afraid of the Dark? But the first three verses of Psalm 23 mean something for us now as well. They remind us that even in, in the most difficult circumstances, we have the Lord with us. And he will always be exactly what we need in a fountain of contentment and joy. And when we feel like we just can't do it anymore, we can cry out to the shepherd, and we can know with 1,000% confidence that he will restore and renew our souls and bring us a pasture. No set of circumstances, church, exceeds the shepherd's ability to restore us and to renew us and to give us peace. He'll use prayer. He will use scripture. He will use fellow believers, whatever, but he will do it. As other people have, have noticed, this is, just, this is a free aside here, I suppose. The Bible is kind of... It's kind of an outdoors book, you know? Renewal and, and refreshment, they, they seem to be found in pastures and in your bodies of water and, and so on and so forth. Netflix didn't exist when King David was alive, but even if it did, it is very hard to imagine Psalm 23 reading something like, he makes me lie down on the couch to catch up on my shows. That's just not the nature of Scripture. Renewal and refreshment and provision from the Lord are often found outside as we engage the senses that God has providentially given us. When we think that, that everything is terrible and I need to quit my job and I need to move immediately to this other city and etc., 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 we might honestly need a long walk. The Lord can do that much renew and restoring and a walk as he can in a new city with a new job. Do you believe that? 
if you're skeptical, some of you might be skeptical about this, you're, you're skeptical about the Lord's ability to refresh and renew in this kind of way. Look at the part of verse 3 that I omitted earlier. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Well, that's fascinating. If the shepherd's care was just really all about us and that's it, that would feel a touch precarious, would it not? I mean, we're sheep. We have problems. But it's not all about us. The Lord provides and guides and protects for his namesake because he's got a reputation on the line and promises to keep. And as he acts in line with his character, he brings glory to his name, which results in abounding joy and praise from his people. That is some elite confidence right there. That's, that's the kind of zip that, that weary and, and, and cynical sheep need along the way. I, I guess this is a bummer if you're hoping to be the central part of the story. But a God-centered story is far more robust and trustworthy. It's not about you, but it's actually better for you. It's the kind of story that you can... We don't sing enough, by the way, in the West, because everyone's all embarrassed and weirded out. It's the kind of story that you can sing softly to your grandmother when she's in hospice and she only has a few days left and her memory is failing. It's a kind of story that you can sing when a grandmother-centered story isn't all that compelling. Thank you very much. When you're on your deathbed, you don't want to hear all that much about you. When you're on your deathbed, you don't want to hear all that much about you because you are dying. You want to hear about God and how he's your shepherd and how you don't have to fear evil and can actually laugh at death because God's got his reputation on the line so you know he's going to bring you through this valley to the other side. Speaking of the other side, you're not going to believe this, but you can make a strong argument the Lord's relationship with his people, specifically David here in Psalm 23, it's described in even more intimacy in verses 5 through 6. Which brings us to our second and our very brief reflection before we end. The Lord is our host. The Lord is our shepherd, yes. He's also our host. Look at verses 5 and 6. You, that is the Lord, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not only is the Lord our shepherd, he is the most generous and hospitable dinner host, the universe has ever known. 
Southern hospitality has nothing on the Lord. The meals they prepare in, in the uh, Downton Abbey show, especially the one for the queen or whatever, they have nothing on the Lord, which, by the way, I'm assuming the Lord is also a better screenwriter than whoever wrote the Christmas special in which they killed off one of the lead actors. I was thinking about this, I realized I'm still irritated by that. Not even our fiercest enemies can stop the Lord from inviting us to this banquet table. He's the most hospitable dinner host. And not even our enemies can stop the Lord from inviting us to this table. The strongest evidence yet in the psalm that the troubles of death's shadows will ultimately give way to triumph. Once again, God doesn't just save us out of trouble. He does that. But you see that he also brings us into abundant life, which can be described as a feast with the Lord himself, in which our enemies are powerless and possibly even bound. Jesus, if you read about his earthly ministry, regularly enjoyed meals with the people that he ministered to. He was always eating. I mean, read the Gospel of Luke. My goodness, it's this meal, the meal, the meal, the meal. He's always eating. And it turns out that we're going to get in on that as well. We're going to get in on that communion with Jesus, enjoyed in some measure now, and then fully consummated later when Christ returns. Our enemies out there and in here continue to, to nag at us a bit right now because we're still living in the, in the presence of sin. Christ has conquered the power of sin, but we're living in the presence of sin. But then, when Christ returns, our enemies will be finally and fully eliminated as we dine in worshipful and blissful peace. And even better, we're going to be dining in the house of the Lord. In our case, a better temple or tabernacle, or sanctuary, than David or any of the Israelites ever knew. It's one thing for a friend or a relative to invite you over for a meal. That's very generous. It's another thing entirely for them to invite you to spend the night, especially if you have several young kids. That's very generous. And here we find the Lord inviting us to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think about how long it takes for you to wear your welcome out and then just multiply that into infinity or, or however you do that math and that's what you have with the Lord. He invites us to dwell in the house of the Lord together. A big, big house, as Audio Adrenaline put it, with lots and lots of room. Room for all who would put their hope in Christ Jesus temple, the tabernacle, they were constrained by geography. There are no physical constraints on the eternal household of God. A house that's better than the temple because everyone, not just Levites, everybody will be in the immediate presence of the Lord. And the oil of our anointing will, will run down our faces as the Lord lifts up our head in victory. And his covenantal loving kindness is his hesed will follow us around 
that big, big house. It's with us now. It will always be with us. And so the people of God are okay, no matter what's going on circumstantially. Let me end with this. I get frustrated when I hear this, and I, I, I feel like I need to get this off my chest. Aside from the Lord's care, the um, it's all going to work out, it's all going to be okay advice in the face of fear is disingenuous at best and like counseling malpractice at worst. Maybe it's compelling advice in places of comfort and ease. Try using that in eastern Ukraine right now. But if we're in the Lord's care, we will be okay. Actually, we'll be better than okay. And this is why I've only, some of you might watch America's Got Talent. One of the judges is Simon, who is famously a very difficult person. He's warm sometimes. The only time that I've seen him tear up, and I haven't watched the show a ton, the only time I've, I've seen him tear up is when Nightbird, the singer, follower of Jesus, was singing a song that she wrote called It's Okay. That's the only time I've ever seen it. Because there is something unshakably amazing and profound about joy and okayness experience in the context of pain. The world cannot figure it out. It only tries to mitigate. But the thing about it is the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our host. So a follower of Jesus who's about to pass away from cancer, whose husband left her five years prior, can sing a song titled, It's Okay. Amen.